too much. Let's talk a little bit. You don't eat much, you don't talk much. <laughs> I'm just listening. This is the Just Listening Podcast with pizza artist Eric John. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show today. This is Just Listening. I am Eric John, and before we get into it, I've got to tell you about my friend John Scambato over at Yacht Club Soda. Yacht Club has the best artisan soda ever made. I've been drinking this stuff since I was a kid, and uh, it really blows all the big names all the big brands out of the water. So go to yachtclubsoda.com and check out all the flavors they have. They've got blue raspberry, they've got grape, they've got uh, orange cream, lemon lime, uh, root beer, strawberry, pineapple. They've got all kinds of amazing flavors. So you got to go to yachtclubsoda.com and check out what they've got. Place an order today. If you live anywhere in the United States, you can order Yacht Club Soda. You don't have to live here in Rhode Island where Yacht Club is the official soda of the state of Rhode Island. Uh, you can live anywhere and you can enjoy this amazing soda. So go to yachtclubsoda.com today and order some for yourself. Okay, everybody on the show today, we have Karen Ann Harlos. Uh, Karen Ann is uh, the secretary of the Libertarian National Committee. Um, and, uh, you know, I I was involved in the Libertarian Party uh, way back now in around 2018, 2019 uh, with the Mises Caucus when it first kind of got started. Um, actually ended up being a, a Region 8 uh, rep, um, you know, that, that sort of covered all of New England and New York, I think. Um, but then stepped away for reasons that we'll get into uh, in, in the course of our conversation here. Um, but I kind of stopped paying attention very closely to, to a lot of the stuff that was going on uh, with the party. And um, so I'm going to catch up with Karen Ann uh, here in this conversation about all of that. Um, and uh, she has her own show as well, um, a podcast called The Pink Flame of Liberty. So uh, without further ado, Karen Ann, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. I'm very excited to talk to you. Um, as I mentioned, um, I recently recorded an episode with Dave Benner, and um, uh, he spoke very, very highly of you and uh, mentioned that you were a pacifist, which is a topic I'm very, very interested in, uh, especially as it relates to libertarianism, but also to to you know to faith and religion and stuff like that. Um, now, uh, full disclosure, you know, I I was very involved uh, with the LP for a short time, uh, probably around uh, 2018, sometime around then, um, in, in the very, very, very the earliest days of the Mises Caucus. And so I'm very I'm aware of you, but I kind of ducked out um, very early on, um, and I haven't followed uh, what's been going on in the LP that closely uh, until Reno, until basically the, a lot of that stuff was was going on. Um, and man, have you've really been through it. I, I did a little bit of uh, yeah. a little bit of catch up. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I remember you being a bit of a lightning rod, you know, ba even back then. But man, you really do seem to attract um, all the like just the, the worst of the worst kinds of uh, attacks and, uh, you know, all sorts of stuff. So before we get into all the pacifism stuff, I do I just want to touch on some of this stuff quickly. Um, oh, explain sure. to the explain to the people listening just very briefly. Just explain to people exactly what happened in Reno um, with the power shift. Like just what what was the dynamic there and what happened? Oh God! Like there's so many strands 
that led to that point. So yeah, we can we could do with the with the conclusion and yes, then make sure. it a why done it. You know how there's who done it. Sometimes there's why done it. The, the the conclusion was the the party was completely turned on its head. And I don't want to say turned on its head like in an ideological way. I think it's actually going back to its roots. But normally conventions aren't a complete 100% or close to replacement of the power structure and a lot of the guiding direction. Usually, you know, a certain group will have a certain percentage of people on the LNC, but I've never seen it where it's been near 100%. So it was a referendum on the past years and particularly on the past LNC. And it wasn't a good referendum, like whatsoever. Now, how it got there, I think a multitude of things had to happen in order for that to happen. So it was the perfect storm. I think I was one of those threads, but only one of them. But I also tend to think minus any one of the numerous threads, it wouldn't have happened. Or it would have happened to a much lesser extent, like a more typical convention, you know, Maybe it still would have been overwhelming, but I don't think it would have been the complete route that it ended up being in 2021. Yeah, 2022, excuse me. And in catching, you know, in catching up on a lot of this, you know, it it really stunned me um, the level to which some of these uh, sort of dirty tricks um, were going on and and the lengths that some of these, uh, this old guard or pre, I should say previous guard, maybe is a better way to say it, uh, the lengths that they went to to try to stop this from happening. How, how would you describe the, the previous leadership um, of the LNC? And why do you, what do you think, is it just about power, uh, Karen Ann, or is there something else that they're afraid of when it, with this, the new group coming in? Well, first, know that no group is monolithic and there were, about six really good members of the past LNC, and they're still on the LNC, by the way, with maybe one or two exceptions. So when I say the past LNC, I'm, I'm referring to the supermajority, not everyone. But the only way I could describe the past LNC with that caveat is utterly corrupt. They were utterly corrupt. And what was it about? That is so hard to know people's motivations. Some of it was about, believe it or not, in the LP power. But you know that that saying in academic circles that the amount of vicious fighting over perceived power is directly inverse to the amount of actual power involved. And even though that was for academic circles, I think it applies in any kind of insular organization, which we certainly are. So the very small amount of power makes the fighting even more vicious. And I've also said, and I don't know what has made me immune to it, and I might not be immune to it tomorrow, so I'm not going to be cocky about it. I, you know, there, but for the grace of God, go I. But I've often said the LNC is where radicals go to die. And that's what happened. There were some people who used to be really solid libertarians that just became completely compromised and corrupt. Because that's that's what happens. Very few radicals make it out of the LNC and remain a radical. I'm one of the few, and I'm not out yet. You know, I better get out. You know, if I ever see that coming, I've often told people, "You have my permission to just like shoot me, like if you see me going that route." And I don't know how I've resisted it because I'm not better than anybody else. You know, environment. Who the heck knows? But. 
you know, there were some people who obviously were corrupt when they started. We just didn't know it, like Joe Bishop Henchman. But there were others that I know used to be good people and became corrupted by the scraps of power and adulation you got in the LNC, which is just pathetic. Now, the, the name of the group that has sort of taken uh, the LP by storm is called the Mises Caucus. And as I mentioned, I was I was very involved early on with the Mises Caucus. And then I, I stepped away for multiple reasons. It had nothing to do with them. It had to do with, you know, um, at, for spiritual reasons, but also just family reasons and not having the kind of time that I wanted and, and so on and so forth. Um, and but now you you if I understand this correctly, you've never actually been a member of the Mises Caucus. Is that right? Well, first, before I answer that, I want to say we would love to have you back at whatever. Oh, that's very kind. <laughs> that's very you kind. You don't have to go in as hardcore <laughs> as I do, you know. I, oh, well, I, I did. Like, I did go in hardcore. Yeah, to you start. don't have and to. I, you don't. That's true. I do. You know, I, and I, there are still some spiritual uh, or religious elements there. And I, you know, I'd love to actually talk about them with oh, you. Oh, I this, would love to interview. hear that. Um, but, uh, but I love those guys. I love those guys. I love Michael. I love Jeff. Um, you know, and I used to uh, converse with them regularly back then. And uh, of course I don't much anymore. Uh, but again, not because of anything to do with them, just because I'm not as involved. Um, and there's but, some new, um, interesting rising stars. If I can throw some names out there, like Amy, sure. LePure, um, who does their candidate training and stuff. I think you'd really like her. Like what a solid individual. And of course, Angela, um, as the party chair. So there are some faces today. Now, obviously, Jeff and Mike are still very prominent, but there's some new prominent faces bringing. A, I, I don't like to use this word because it can be negative, um, more of a moderating influence. I used to joke with Mike and they made a shirt about my joke that you guys, because they asked me, say something negative about the Mises Caucus. I said, okay, <laughs> you're a bunch of young bucks full of piss and vinegar. And they made a t-shirt that said young bucks full of piss and vinegar. Oh, but brilliant. Th they, I mean, that is a plus, but it can also be a negative. And I think some of that has been moderated a little bit with maturity, which I think is a good thing. And yeah. some of the people I mentioned, I think help for that. And that's not a criticism at all, because when you're young and just starting, you have to be that way. So right. they're just growing up as an organization. But I am, in fact, now a member of the Mises Caucus. I wasn't for years. I was a member of the Radical Caucus. Then I left them. I was without a caucus until about November or December of 2021, at which point I officially joined the Mises Caucus. Now, did, did you and, and the reason I asked the question is because, um, you know, so much of the ire of this uh, previous uh, leadership, uh, you mentioned Joe Bishop Henchman, of course, Nicholas Sarawak is another individual. Um, uh, he was the chair back when I was still involved. Um, and of course, he continued to be a thorn in the sides of many. But so much of the ire always se seems like it fell on you. Um, what What is it about you, Karen Ann, that just just seem to people just can't resist just trying to uh, attack you, take you down? Uh, I think they even kicked, tried to kick you off or did kick oh, you off. Well, the LNC. Oh, that's well, that's the story of 2021. Um, right. There, you know, I try to be self-reflective on it because, you know, if people attack you, it's not always their fault. There's obviously something you're doing as well. So I always try to be self-reflective of that. 
but I in in my whole life I've been a polarizing figure. So so where you might say, oh, there's all these people that want to attack you. I also have people that would travel the world for me. So I seem to inspire extremes, right. either extreme devotion or the opposite. And you want to know what? I'm great with that because it means I make people feel something. Um, if we're going to get into spiritual things, you know, we can quote Revelation 3 where, you know, God says, I, I wish you were hot or cold and not lukewarm. So nobody has any lukewarm right. feelings about me. I inspire emotion. And I think that's what politics need. And uh, I, I think Reno showed much to the dismay of some of my detractors that I have way more supporters. Like people go, how do you handle some of these extreme haters? They are loud, but they're very few. Let me give you an example. When they were doing their bogus, corrupt removal motions against me. I could tell you on the LNC, we very rarely get emails from members. On a particularly controversial issue, we might get 10. I got 1,300 emails in my support. That's never happened in the history of the party. And the LNC completely ignored them. And in fact, this is people who wrote will we'll find this so special. Um, a filter was created because any of the emails that come in in the contact form have a certain header. So uh, a filter was created so that LNC members could just filter them out of their mailbox without ever having to see them because oh, wow. there were so many. And that's just how it was. The person who created the filter was not trying to hide them. It was somebody who was doing it in good faith just to help people organize their inboxes. But I know how it was used, just never to see them. Um, the only other time there was that many emails, and I like to joke to him because I got more than he does, was when they were thinking of canceling Tom Woods as a speaker. And I think he got 1,100 emails. So I got a couple wow. hundred more than Tom Woods did. And uh, those are the ones in support. I could tell you how many were in opposition. 24, I think, was the number. That's, that's quite a spread. Uh, I, don't, <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it's pretty convincing, Karen Ann. And, you know, one of the things that I feel like people say about you pretty consistently is that you, you tell it like it is, okay, that you when, when someone's wrong about something, they're wrong. It doesn't matter if you're politically aligned with them or not, that you'll you'll say when they're wrong. So I'm curious, what, since you've been there, you've been on the LNC, which, and, and for people listening, when we say LNC, what we're saying, what we're talking about is the Libertarian National Committee. It's the it's the it's basically the board that runs the Libertarian Party uh, nationally. Um, how, how, how is this LNC operating and functioning compared to the previous one, just since you've, you've been there for both? There's a lot more every first, let me get something out there. And some of my current LNC members might not like me saying this, but this is just the nature of boards. <laughs> anyone, who, anyone who's been on a board knows this. Every board is dysfunctional. That's of the course. way boards are. It's like they every are. family. Yep. Um, so obviously I'm not going to pretend like we're perfect, but there's not a hint of corruption. What, what people don't get when I like, go off queen, you know, type thing. It isn't simply because I think someone's wrong or because I disagree with somebody. It's because I think there's bad faith. A lot of times you don't see me having the more civil disagreements because I don't do those in public. I handle them one-on-one -on -one because I can interact with that person in good faith. There's a big controversy going on right now in Colorado that you might know about with a board strategy that some people don't like. And honestly, 
I'm not on board with the strategy, but the board came at it in good faith. It's their job. So it's not my job to go on social media and trash them. They were elected to do a job. And I got to understand, just like everyone else does, that elected leaders are sometimes going to make decisions you don't like. The question to ask you is, are they doing what they believe in good faith without corruption is the best thing for the organization? And that's all you can ask of a leader. So people don't see the disagreements I have with Angela or any other LNC member because they're not corrupt. And I have disagreements with Angela. She'll be the first one to tell you, but I have them with her personally. I don't need right, to go on exactly. social media and advertise them everywhere because she and I handle it. That's not and how it works, right? The, That's not how it so, works. So, you know, I have disagreements with the Colorado board. I talk to them privately. Um, and that's what you do. That's what you do if you're when you're being respectful. I mean, uh, just because something's not public doesn't mean it's it's being uh, hidden or sneaky. I mean, you're 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 doing the business of um, of the board, and there's relationships there, right? And that's and that's how it that's how it works. Um, but at the same time, I know, and just from trying to go over the last many years of your work and just um, whether it's listening to old podcasts or uh, episodes or whatever, um, you're not afraid to, to speak out publicly but when it's absolutely necessary. And I think it makes sense that you that you first try to resolve things uh, uh, privately because, you know, it's 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 not it's not an easy thing to go out there and, uh, you know, publicly um, go after somebody. It's no, you know, nobody really wants to do that. No. And uh, let me put also another caveat on that. Cause I just know like some of my haters will be like, yeah, but you didn't do that then uh, going to someone personally, uh, kind of insinuates that you have that access or that trust. Now, if we're dealing with some other public figure that I don't know, and they're right. on Twitter publicly saying some crap, yeah, I'll call them out publicly because we don't have a relationship. So I'm talking about when I have access to somebody and we have some kind of relationship. We we, we know each other, you know, my board, of you course. know, the party chair, whatever. But like I had a little bit of a disagreement. People are, are making much more of out of it than it was because they like drama and neither she nor I want this drama. But I had a little bit of disagreement with the red-haired libertarian um, on Twitter the other day. But I don't know her personally. So I know I did not have a personal discussion with her. She made a public comment and I made a public comment back. And then people kept trying to get us to fight. And we were both like, now nah, we're good fam. Yeah, and you've you've both been you've both both been doing this long enough to know when uh, people yeah. are trying to egg something on too, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, and I'm not interested okay. in fighting with her. But in that dispute, which is funny, is I took the side of Chase Oliver. Now, I like Chase Oliver as a person. He's a candidate running for um, LP. But, you know, he said some really terrible things about Mises in the past that I wish he would apologize for. It's no secret that he probably wouldn't be my first choice. So it's not like I'm carrying water because, you know, I'm Chase's number one rah-rah person. But he was right. He was right in the circumstance. And that what, was the, what was the circumstance? What was the circumstance? He, just to say um, briefly, again, not I, I don't want to really rehash beef uh, with the red haired libertarian, but she was going to have a presidential forum and excluded libertarian candidates. He took a, a bit see. of umbrage to that. And she said to him, well, has national declared you're a candidate? And he said, I don't need to ask permission. And it became very obvious to me that she had no uh -huh. idea the way the 
the Libertarian Party works, which I just found kind of surprising when you have the that word is surprising. In your yeah, name, that is surprising. And you're a big political commentator. Okay, you want to know what we all say dumb things. I say dumb things. So whatever. I don't. I don't want to dwell on that. But the fact that he was like, I don't need to ask permission. People were like, Oh, he's being rude. I'm like, Come on, we're yeah, all on Twitter. No. That's not rudeness <laughs> on Twitter. So no, I said Chase was not rude. He was right to say what he was. He did. And he should be included. And I had some people more on my side of the aisle like, oh, he's not who we support. Why are you defending him? I'm like, I'm defending him because he's right. That's all I care about. He's and I think right. That's, that's- that's that's your reputation, Karen. And, and you know, and uh, I and I, I I have an affinity with that because, uh, you know, on a much on a much, much smaller level, I was you know, I, I was involved in one board that, that operated similarly to the way the LNC operates. Right. With, you know, there's Robert's Rules of Order and there's decorum and there's all that stuff. Um, and I, I had the very same approach that you have, which is, you know, if someone was right, they're right. If someone's wrong, they're wrong. And and I, because of that, I only lasted a year and, you know, as the chair of the board. And I think that's probably why it's probably because, you know, people are kind of like, you know, well, what the hell? Why didn't you have my back on this or why didn't you have my back on that? And, uh, you know, I'm a stickler for, you know, if something's right, it's right. And if something's not, it's not. Well, Sorry. It's you know. funny. Um, in, in the Twitter thing, I said, if you're surprised that I'm defending Chase, then you don't know me. And what's funny is the chair of Colorado piped in on that thread and said, and it doesn't matter if you if you're nearly best friends with her, she'll tell you you're wrong. <laughs> Ask me how I know. <laughs> well, you know what? That, and in the end, Karen, Ann, that's a good thing, because I think um, at least for, at least for, you know, I can speak for myself. Um, I like knowing that when when people are supporting me, um, that they mean it uh, and they're not just doing it for some ulterior motive. Um, and so that's a good thing. It's a really good thing. Um, and I, I like when people tell me if I'm wrong, because um, if. If I have a blind spot on something or if I'm missing something, I certainly want to know about it. And I want there to be people I trust uh, to tell me that I'm wrong about it. Um, I, I do. I, I want to do, go ahead. I want to just back up one second where you said they were trying to remove me from the LNC. They they actually tried uh, three times. Um, they succeeded on the third attempt, allegedly. And I say allegedly because it ended up getting declared null and void by the convention. But for the period of time um, and, and they had to cheat to do it. It was within cheating. You know how cheating within the rules There's something you could do that might be technically OK on paper, but you're an absolute scumbag. Um, yes. Yeah. They did something like that. And I, I'm still not even technically sure it was right on paper, but I'll I'll grant that it doesn't even matter. It was still a scumbag move. Um, so from I think it was September 5th or September 6th through Reno, I was technically not the party secretary. They allegedly removed me. But Reno overturned that decision, which means that their removal was null and void. So in the records of the party, I was always the secretary, just on an involuntary right. vacation for, you know, eight <laughs> right. months or whatever it was. But here's what's funny, because and you'll go, this is like so classic you. Um, I said to them, <laughs> I don't believe you had the authority or the right ethically to remove me. But, you know, you did it. I'm going to still continue to do my job to the best of my ability. So I still did all of the minutes. I just attended the meetings as a guest, still did all of the minutes, still did my delegate allocate. I did every oh, wow. part of that job that. still the whole time that I could. Now, there were some things, obviously, I couldn't because I didn't have access to certain things. But I still did everything because as far as I was concerned, 
I was still secretary. I go, you don't recognize it. I'm not going to go barge in on your meetings and try to sit at the table. The members recognize it. Um, I called myself the secretary in exile and still did my job. And uh, yeah, so when that is know, so you, Karen Ann. Well, yeah, <laughs> that is so you. And there's no there's no more thankless job on a board than secretary or treasurer. I've 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 always said that they're the most thankless jobs. They're not, you know, it's it's not as sexy as being the chairman or even the vice, you know, the vice chairman or whatever. But it's but it's such an important job. Um, and it seems like you enjoy it. I do. I mean, I think it matches my skill set and another thing which. Uh, some people listening who are at Reno may not know. So when I got to Reno, because again, I was still doing my job. I was fully prepared to be convention secretary should that become necessary, including training for two months and recruiting my own team of tellers. So um, when I got to Reno, I'm trying hard not to be critical of the person who sat in my seat for eight months. Let's just put it this way. He was, he's a super nice guy, terrible secretary. There's nothing wrong saying that I'm a terrible treasurer. Like some people just aren't made for certain jobs. He's sure, actually a very saying. good chair. He, he used to be chair of Texas. He chaired, um, in some breaks during Reno and did a really good job. So I'm not trying to put them down. Just everyone's not a good secretary. So he wasn't a very good secretary. So when I got to Reno, he didn't have any tellers. Now I could have been a real, I don't know. Am I allowed to curse? Cause it's really hard. You for can. Me it's, yeah, oh. no, it's fine. It's okay, you do whatever you want. It's fine. Okay. So I could have been a really salty bitch. And I think everyone would have thought I'd have been justified and said, you don't have any tellers. Oh, this is going to be a fun train wreck. Sucks to be you. And went and sat my happy ass down, but I didn't. A lot of people would have done that for sure. I said, sure. dude, I go, I've got with me 12 people. I think it was 12 that are trained. I'm going to go ask them if they would be willing to be your tellers, um, if you'll have them. And he, he took them and he then graciously offered to let me sit with him uh, as his assistant. Now, some people would have found that demeaning. I didn't. And plus, I knew how I trained these folks and he knew they were loyal to me. So I, I didn't take that as any kind of diminishment at all. Some people thought it it was meant to be demeaning. He did not mean it to be demeaning. He again, nice guy. So yeah, that convention would have been a shit show. They had no tellers. Like that's what you get when you and the, you know the libertarian convention is difficult enough to run. And for people listening, this is you know the libertarian convention is not like the Republican or Democratic convention, which are which are basically big infomercials that are highly orchestrated and organized. Uh, these conventions are legit conventions where people on the floor can make motions and, you know, people might have a sense of what's going to happen. But, you know, it's it's a, a lot of it's done on the fly and the people running the, the meeting. It's it's a challenge, um, uh, even when you have the tellers <laughs> and, and you're and you're ready to go oh, it's hard. Let alone when you don't let alone when you don't. Who was uh, just real quick before we uh, jump into the uh, more faith based discussion and the pacifism mm -hmm. thing? Who what was the name of the, the gentleman who jumped in to to run uh, the convention? Ken Mulman. Um, he I mean, I don't know. You know. I don't know what your thoughts are on him at all, but I, I thought he was great. I, I don't know what his allegiances are. I don't know much about him, but Ken I did watch not a caucus guy. So he doesn't have any caucus allegiances. Ken is just one of those good guys. That yeah, he's a good guy. 
yeah, that everybody likes. So um, it was super, listen, Whitney and I have had our disagreements. And Whitney um, was the former uh, Yeah, the Yeah, but I'm not going to say like anything bad about Whitney. We had our disagreements. We've had our agreements. I've known Whitney a really long time. Um, and it's tragic that she got so sick. You might not know that's why Ken ended up chairing. Whitney got horrifically sick. I think she had I a ruptured eardrum. Like, oh, geez. She had to like she had to get emergency medical attention and go home early. So she wasn't removed. It wasn't anything like that. She struggled through that first day with a ruptured eardrum. So I know some people thought she was a bit cranky. I'd have been a hell of a lot more cranky. So the fact that she got through that first day is a testament to her strength, but I don't think she was the best person to chair that convention because she was factional and people already had their opinions it ended up being a blessing in disguise, unfortunately, because Whitney got sick, um, that Ken had to step in. Um, Ken was the best person for, for that job. But also the gentleman who was the temporary secretary who, who did some of that convention, he also would have been good. Um, just some generally jovial, you know, I don't mean dude like in that in the negative sense, like a dude. Yeah, right. Bro. I just mean like a guy. Yeah, guy. Yeah, you know? he, and, absolutely. Um, he had a great uh, demeanor. Yeah. Had a great demeanor, and uh, I think it, it definitely seemed like that's what that convention needed was yeah. was someone with that temperament. Um, and so I just I just wanted to make sure, like you know, I you, I got to actually learn what his name was because I'm sure I knew it at the time and and had forgotten. And um, I did want to make note of that. But I do want to move on. I want to move on to uh, talking more about pacifism. And I do want to, I'll start with discussing or, or letting you know about why I left the LP um, and what my, my sort of spiritual or religious reasons uh, were. And that I think it, it will tie a little bit into the pacifism as well. Um, I, I'm a Quaker. I've been a Quaker since um, around 2009, 2010. Uh, so not my whole life, um, but I was convinced as Quakers say. Um, and I, it, I got to a point where I just felt like, um, you know, it for Quakers, uh, the idea of being factious in any way um, or joining factions anyway, um, whether it's a caucus within a party or a political party itself, um, I just felt it's not like there's a rule against it. It just it felt it felt to me personally like I wasn't living into uh, my faith in that way and that in, in even being a member of the LP. Um, I wasn't I wasn't living into uh, my faith in that way and that I could better um, serve liberty and serve freedom um, from from a uh, more neutral standpoint. Um, So that's where I I was coming from with that. And I still feel that way today. And that's why that's why I'm not uh, a member of the party. It would be very easy just to be a member of the party. It's like twenty five bucks and it's not like it doesn't require any time yeah. commitment at all. Um, but that's why. That's why. And I didn't you know maybe have you ever uh, you know I don't know. I I think I feel like I know that you're uh, you consider yourself a Christian, but I don't know much more about your your faith other than that and that you're a pacifist. Um, but I'm very curious to know about that you know if you want to talk a little bit about what yeah. your faith is and, and I, i'm going to know. laugh because i know you haven't heard these other interviews or else you would have been like oh there's even a more point of common agreement um i don't belong to any denomination but the ones i resonate most with are the quakers 
and oh, just no the general Anabaptist tradition. One reason okay. why I haven't um, embraced the Quakers is for some of the reasons you said. I'm quite factious. I'm also quite showy. And I know the, the the Quakers really emphasize, you know, the calmness, the peacefulness and not drawing attention to yourself. And I'm not that. Um, I'm more the John the Baptist figure. And I can respect that. So I wouldn't come sure. into a community and, and, and be disruptive like that. But when it comes to a lot of their beliefs and just general Anabaptist uh, beliefs, that's where my pacifism comes from. That's where my egalitarianism, uh, you know, and people take that word to mean something it's not. I mean it in the good right. way of the equality of men and women come from, which the Quakers were way on the forefront of. Also, um, very pietistic with a mystical bent. And there's a lot of that in, in, in the Quakers as well. So nearly everything about the tradition, except for like the be calm and don't have bright pink hair and draw attention to yourself <laughs> stuff. Right. Um, but other than that, like I, I probably agree with them on most of their theology. Uh, so that's pretty funny that you said that, that, that you come from the, from the Quakers. I, um, but I, before I even learned what the Quakers believed or even all of these differences, cause I, I came from a very, not good fundamentalist tradition. It, I know this movement might not be quite so fundamentalist in every state because it's throughout the country, but I come from the Calvary Chapel movement. It was very fundamentalist in Florida where I lived. It was the largest church in Florida. It's one of the largest ones in the country till the pastor fell. And because that's what happens when you put somebody on a pedestal, you know, leads them into all kinds of temptations. And I became convinced of the house church movement that the early Christians didn't meet in these fancy buildings and stuff. They didn't go someplace to be talked to for an hour and hour or whatever, hour and a half, two hours, it's Calvary, it could be three, um, that the, the Christian movement was meant to be a, a movement led in community, in, in small groups and homes that was participatory where, where no one was given these exalted titles and, you know, people took turns sharing and, and, everyone fell equal. Uh, so I became convinced of the house church movement and in just exploring that, um, and reading the early church, cause I've written a book. A lot of people don't know this. I don't agree with everything I formally wrote. Cause again, I was a hardcore fundamentalist at the time, but I've written a book on eschatology and in writing on eschatology, I did a lot, a lot of studying of the early church because I think the modern church gets eschatology for those who don't know, it means the study of what's called the end times. Um, I think most of the modern church gets eschatology absolutely and utterly wrong. So I wanted to learn what the early church um, felt about it. And in reading that, I was very, very much struck about how pacifistic they were and that the church really did grow because of that. And it's very counterintuitive, but Michael Malice actually said something about this too, on how he thinks um, there's more power in pacifism than in violent resistance, because in pacifism, you, you force the aggressor to own their violence, because when you're not fighting back, all they have to look at is themselves. And it really um, makes them face themselves. Why do we adore that image of that guy staring down the tank in Tiananmen Square? I think that's why. I 
to me, we will do much more to end violence in this world by not resisting it. And I know some people think that's the coward's way, but they can think that all they want. I don't impose my views on anyone else. I don't hold it as a universal moral view that defensive violence is wrong for everybody. But I believe as a Christian, we're called to give up certain things just as, you know, um, I think it's in, is it crap? I haven't read these verses in a while, but I think it's in Galatians, uh, Think, let me know, or is it Ephesians, where it said that um, being being found in the form of a man, that Christ emptied himself, the kenosis um, of all the prerogatives of godhood, I think we all have certain rights as humans, but that as Christians, we are called to lay aside some of those rights. doesn't mean we don't have the right to pick them back up again, just like Christ at any moment, as he said, don't you know right now I could call down an army of angels? What are you doing, Peter? You know, Christ voluntarily laid aside some of his prerogatives. I think as Christians, we're supposed to model that. And one of the things we are called to lay aside is our right to violent self-defense and to see in aggressors the image of God. And seeing that, I could not destroy an image bearer. And I know where I'm going. So I would rather that person have another chance. Um, so to some people, that just sounds really stupid. That's okay. Religion's not completely rational, but that's a conviction. Crap, I've had way before I was a libertarian. So this really has absolutely nothing to do with my political beliefs. It's strictly a religious belief. And I came to the same religious beliefs about refusing to uh, do the flag worship stuff. That's not a libertarian thing, though I do think it fits well with libertarianism. But I stopped standing for the flag doing all that kind of state ritualistic stuff about five years before I became a libertarian. I was sitting in the Calvary one day and just saw these flags up on stage. And it was like a 4th of July thing. And I'm like, it just struck me. I'm like, this is, this is rank idolatry and just couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. And that's, that's an often misunderstood thing because um, I don't do that either. And it's, there's nothing, it has nothing to do with uh, hating America by any means or anything like that, or, uh, you know, hating the military or anything like that. It has, it's because it's, it's about not um, worshiping something else besides God. That's really what it's about. At least, you know, in, in that, with Quakers, that's a, a very common thing, you know, not saying the Pledge of Allegiance and not putting your hand on the Bible and right. all that sort of stuff. Uh, it has nothing to do with uh, really any feeling about America whatsoever, other than to say we're not putting it above God. Um, one of my favorite uh, Revolutionary War era slogans is appeal to heaven. And, and the reason I love it so much is because um, it's like they were acknowledging back then that, you know, there is this higher authority um, that, that supersedes any, any government or any flag. Um, and so in, in a lot of ways, I like to come back at people who might attack me for, for not saying the pledge, for instance, and to say, Hey, man, I'm just, I'm like one of these revolutionaries, man. Like, you know, I'm, 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 I'm on their side on this one. I don't know what side you're on, but that's the side that, that I'm on. Um, I, one question I have for you about pacifism, uh, and you mentioned self-defense, um, and I agree. And I, you know, I, I, feel like I could I could let myself go if, if I needed to in that situation. Although I I acknowledge that I might in that moment, who knows, I might not be strong enough to, to actually uh, be able to go through with that. But the one p- issue where I really have a problem and uh, and where my p- own pacifism um, uh, is really threatened is when it comes to my kids. And I, I just 
I can't even say, uh, honestly, I feel like if my kids were threatened in some way and I had to kill somebody to protect them, I think I would do it. I, I mean, I, I know I would do it. And so it's almost like I, I almost feel like a fraud sometimes calling myself a pacifist. But um, I still know that, you know, spiritually speaking, the right thing to do would be not to do that. But I just feel like I know myself too well to, to say that I wouldn't uh, wouldn't take that life to protect theirs. What do, what do you make of that? Like, what do you think about that sort of situation when it comes to pacifism? It's that's a really thorny one. A, I don't have kids, um, but if I did, I could. I mean, I can put myself in your shoes without actually having had that. But you know, I've, I've talked with a lot of other pacifists, and I know some people make a distinction, and I don't really know what I think on this. Yeah. I know I personally think it's a personal choice, and it's a choice that you make for yourself in your own life, and that you can't really make for others. And since I don't think it's immoral um, to defend others. Um, I haven't really thought this through enough as to what my position is on violent defense of others, because I do think there's a distinction to be made there. You that think so? I do. I do. Yeah. Hmm. That's so interesting. So, yeah. That's, that's, um, I go back and forth all the time on that. And, and, and part of the issue is, and like you say, push comes to shove. You never know what you're going to do. But um, I've been pondering a lot that issue of defense of others. And um, I, I would hate to be in a position where I could defend others and decided in that moment that the conviction of the right thing um, to do would be to do so and not be equipped to do so. So I am probably going to be getting some some firearms training, actually, not for myself. But if I'm in a situation where there's perhaps children, you know, truly helpless people, um, I, I, I would like to have the option to make the choice in that moment rather than in a theoretical situation sitting at home. Yeah, I know way, what choice it, I've made for myself. But right. I think when it comes to defending the defenseless, that's much thornier. And, and you know, it's sort of like um, you're willing to sacrifice your own, um, you know, uh, spiritual well-being or you're willing to sacrifice your, you know, your own eternal future uh, to protect this other person who cannot protect themselves. I mean, literally, when we're talking about children, um, and you're talking about someone with a gun, you know, that the, they are literally the, the epitome of defenseless. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I can't come to any conclusions right now on that one either. Um, I know what I would do in that situation and it, it, uh, torments me, uh, in terms of my own spirituality. Um, yeah. And maybe it's just one of those things that you, you just have to wrestle with, you know, and you just, Hey, you know what? Maybe, maybe you do what you do and you do what you have to do and you take it up with God later and you, you know, you see how the chips fall. Maybe that sort of situation. I, I, you know, think, it's, kind of I think it's thorny, but I can tell you, and this isn't probably with you or I want to hear, but I can tell you in the early church, um, there were plenty of families that were asked to renounce Christ, whole families. And if they didn't, the parents knew if they didn't tell their children to say that, that the whole family was going to be put to death. And they did. They, they didn't reduce, you know, they, they submitted. You're right. Yeah. You know? It's amazing. I, I mean, look, I, I admire the, the, the spiritual conviction and the strength because I mean, how hard that must be. 
uh, you know, and a lot of the early Quakers too, I mean, allowed themselves to be killed um, uh, for their faith, you know, and were persecuted. Um, you and know, I, and, and I that- know, I, I, I hear the retorts already. I know we can contextualize this a bit, that it was a different world. And I don't mean a different world in the way most people might think. Back then, uh, to be an orphan could be one of the worst fates. It could be a, a fate worse than death. That's so true as the well. The parents yep. may have been taking that into consideration. Whereas today, being an orphan's not great, but you're probably not going to be sold as an eight-year-old prostitute immediately on the streets and your culture think that okay. Where right. things like that weren't uncommon then. You're, you, if you were orphans then, particularly of a disfavored group like Christians, your children would probably be immediately sold into prostitution. So they they might have also had that in mind. And, and I'm not saying that as an excuse. I, I do think it's important to contextualize things. But even so, still, uh, that's what those families did. And even the concept of belief, right? I mean, I, you know, so this is another thing I sort of wrestle with on, uh, for myself. And, uh, and I'm curious to know if you wrestle with it too, is, is, you know, um, if it's sort of the idea that like, if you truly believed, right, then, then it wouldn't be hard to make that choice, right? Because, you know, you're talking about the eternal life of not just you, but your whole family. Um, and if you truly, truly believed in that, then, it, you know, would that really be a hard choice to make? Um, and I know it would be a hard choice to make. So then I start questioning my own, you know, the, uh, the, um, the strength of my own belief. Um, do you, uh, do you struggle with your own faith and your own beliefs in general? Um, and is, is that kind of just, you know, it sort of just comes with the territory when you're a, a faithful or spiritual person. What's funny is I did a lot more in the groups where like, you know, doubt was the word you could never say um in like the calvary chapel movement that was that was the dirty word i i i believe more now that it's no one's around to shame me if i ever said that i had any issues um but you know a verse that was always super super um two verses actually super important to me and one of them might not seem like it has to do with doubt but i think it does in some ways um it first one directly does is mark mark 16 1 where you had someone who was walking with jesus said lord i believe help my unbelief like if people back then had issues (laughs) right and then psalm 110 1 which i think is the the cure against it which is you know thy word i have hidden in my heart that i might not sin against you and i can tell you i think people anyone talk to me even though i'm not quite the memorizer i used to be can tell that the bible is super important to me and that's what sustains me and i'm not an inerrantist i don't think that's required i used to be as a fundamentalist um, not anymore. And I'm actually much more comfortable with my faith that I, I recognize that there are going to be things I don't understand, things that seem crazy to me. Um, and, and actually, uh, uh, I'm going to quote a dumb CCR, uh, you know, Christian contemporary music song, but there's a, there's a band I like called Church of Rhythm. And they have a song called um, Where is God? And it's just talking about all these terrible things um, that happen. But one of the the, the verses in it is, um, you know, where he's just saying, where is God in all of this? And he's like, but I know God is real 
and he means more to me than any slogan. God, please feel, you know, uh, uh, heal this hole in my faith. We're always going to have a hole in our faith. Yeah, I think you're right. And you know, now that you bring it up, you're right that the Bible is chock full of doubt. You know, the, the apostles themselves, I mean, you know, uh, right down to Peter, um, you know, when he's trying to walk on water um, and loses his faith. And of course, he falls in. Um, yeah, you know, you're it's it's you're right. The more you, the more I think about it, it's it just kind of comes with the territory and it's something everyone kind of has to wrestle with. Uh, surely, if even the people who were following Jesus had trouble with it, you know, <laughs> then certainly we're going to have trouble with it as well. Um, What's funny is that, is that Porkfest, because I'm kind of pretty well known in the Christian in the libertarian movement as being a Christian, but not one of those like preachy, like insufferable kinds. Um, somebody who knew me, but I didn't know them, which which happens because I'm, I'm a public figure just out of the of blue course. at the uh, bonfire says, you're a Christian, right? I'm like, yeah. He goes, how do you know you're right? And I said, I don't. I just believe I am. I go, I could tell you one thing I yeah. do know that I never have any doubt about. I know God's real. Um, is every single facet of Christianity right? I, I, I won't BS you and tell you I believe it. It resonates with me, but that's the faith part. But I, I don't have... I don't think I've ever been an atheist in my life. I've been a lot of different religions in my life, um, but I've never been an atheist. I don't think maybe when I was like teen, you know, angsty teenager or something. But because that's one thing I know, I I don't have any doubt at all in the existence of God. Now the 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 form that God takes, the many attributes. Yeah, okay, yeah, I have lots of questions, but in the absolute basic um, things, I. I on that, I, I have no doubt because, oh, my God, I, I, I tell people this are like, oh, that's deep that, you know, it's like if you're it's, it, in these deep conversations with friends, I'm like, for one thing, I, I don't believe the universe is inherently like evil or cruel. And to have beings that are aware of their own identities and their own mortality and to have to live with that your whole life knowing there's nothing after i think that is just like the most cruelest universe you can imagine um like you're 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 living a death sentence and you know there's nothing else and i just don't believe reality is like that there has to be something else karen and that, that's that makes all the sense in the world to me and you know one one thing i always tell people too when they bring that sort of thing up or they ask that sort of question is that it's not about being right it's about being true and like i you know to me those are not the same thing those are not synonyms you know it's not about um being correct it's just more about uh what you feel um and what your experience is and whether something speaks to you or not and if christianity doesn't speak to you um then, you know, that's not true for you. But if it speaks to someone else, then, you know, um, then it speaks to them. And if they, you know, and even if that person feels called to be kind of preachy and uh, to let people know um, about their own experience, uh, you know, I see nothing wrong with that. Um, I think sometimes a lot of uh, times Christians come off as like, it's, you know, it's if you don't do this, you're you're damned to hell. And, you know, that kind of language just scares people away. Um, but um this is such, this has been such a great conversation, Karen. And I, you know, I, I wish I had more time to talk to you about it. I don't, but um, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I'd love to just even just chat with you now and then about faith and and these sorts of questions of pacifism because it is it's such a tough one. 
Um, and I think your insights into it are just are, are, are excellent. And I, I know my audience is, is really going to enjoy it. So before you go, can you just let people know where they can follow you, um, even like how they might be able to join the uh, the LP if that's something they want to do or, or any other sort of information like that? Yeah, uh, certainly. And, and fair warning, because this conversation would not maybe lend you to that. I am quite spicy and everything here. And I actually <laughs> don't find that that much of a contradiction. I know people give me all the verses about cussing and stuff like that. And you want to know what? Maybe one day I'll decide you're right. Um, I cuss I, too, Karen Ann. Yeah, you know, I, I, I feel myself <laughs> I as no much problem more of a confrontational <laughs> John the Baptist type figure. And I just like I don't think modesty is not letting your boobs hang out modesty is more than that it's much more than that and 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 i think profanity is much more than that as well i agree i do agree but some people i know again that's my fundamentalist background i am making up for lost time because (laughs) i'd be the darn you to heck type of person not that long ago (laughs) so i'm on twitter uh mostly i'm on facebook as well but i mostly just share like dumb videos on facebook because i'm tired of getting banned but uh karen ann harlos which is c-a-r-y-n it's a little bit different i'm a karen and camouflage so i can infiltrate their dens um (laughs) so it's karen ann at karen ann harlos on Twitter, but I'm basically that on any social media that I'm actually on. And on YouTube, I'm the Pink Flame of Liberty. That's my YouTube channel. I, when I'm not crazy busy with the LP, try to stream every day. Won't be this coming up weeks. So I'll be at Freedom Fest. And to, to join the LP, it is just $25 a year. Um, and one thing that's always struck me as being very compatible with Christianity in the LP is our non-initiation of force pledge. Okay. It's not pacifism, but it is that you won't be an aggressor. And uh, Ben, if the world just lived by that principle, just think how much better things would be already, then there wouldn't really be the need for defensive force if people weren't initiating force to begin with. So it's at lp.org forward slash join. Um, We'd really appreciate having you because this world is bad. (laughs) And I do think (laughs) political action is important. Do I think political action alone is going to do a thing? No. But I've often said that we're a social movement disguised as a political party. And that's the way we were founded. I don't care who gets really upset about that. It's the reality. So I'm doing politics, but I also think I'm doing much more of trying to affect social change. Karen Ann, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. And I will talk to you soon. All right. You have an awesome day. This is the Just Listening Podcast. I gotta go. Go where? We just got I got that thing. I gotta go. With pizza artist Eric John. Uh, wait a couple of minutes. We'll all leave together, okay? This way you don't go out like a bunch of hobos staggering out one at a time. Please like, share, and subscribe.